Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. In this episode of the podcast, episode number 25, we're talking about the handful of very interesting new cars that Andrew and me have driven recently. Some of them you will have read about on Drive Nation already. Uh, Remember, that's at drivenation underscore on Instagram. If you haven't already gone to check it out, you must do so. Um, We've got lots of ground to cover, lots of different types of car, small electric car to a carbon fiber supercar, a couple of Porsches, also to a really beautiful recreation of a 60s Italian V12. Um, Lots of interesting stuff in there. But Andrew, before we get stuck in, we want to talk about this idea of peak car. Um, It's something that you've written about already for our Patreon supporters. Um, And if you don't know already, you can bung us a few quid each month over on patreon.com forward slash drive nation in return for exclusive content. But Andrew, peak car, what do we mean by that? I mean, it's something I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be banging on about a bit because I just sort of feel that um, cars have gone too far. Uh, and by that, I mean the things that we wanted cars to do when I first started doing this 30 odd years ago, um, they have done in spades and now actually do too much. Um, for instance, you know, we wanted cars to get faster in a straight line because they weren't very quick. Now cars are so fast in a straight line they're actually not that pleasant because it's such a violent experience cars now go around corners so quickly um you know unless you're in you know one of the exceptions to the rule like an mx5 or an a110 or something like that um if you're in a quick car you can't get near the limit and so that entire dimension of driving enjoyment is is being ruled is being ruled out. In the meantime, the pursuit of this performance um, has been fueled largely by a pursuit of power, um, because that's what sells cars. And the pursuit of power we know um, makes cars worse because they may become more powerful, but they tend to have things like turbochargers, paddle shift gear changes. They tend to get a lot heavier because to support power you need bigger wheels, bigger tires, bigger brakes, beefier suspension, and on and on and on. And you get further and further. Away away 
from, you know, what we would, I guess, think of as being our ideal car, which is something uh, which is quite compact in dimensions and which is quite light and which is very responsive. Um, so, yeah, so, so I, I had this thought about peak car and, you know, and, and I'm not sure what peak car was, but what I am fairly sure is that wherever that point was, we're past it now. Um, and I, I think what I say is like, I'd actually quite like cars to get worse. Um, <laughs> because I think they'd just be, I think they'd just be more fun. And I think, you know, if you want the proof of that, just, you know, just go and drive any old historic, which, you know, will by any modern objective standards be, be pretty rubbish. Um, and you'll enjoy it more because it is rubbish. Now, I'm not saying we shall go back to the dark ages um, at all. What I am saying, though, is that um, in the pursuit of, you know, of, of speed and power, we've forgotten what made cars great to drive in the first place. Um, and yeah, so that's it. That's uh, that's my little um, treatise on peak car. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm perfectly sure, in fact, that we will never... Um, go into reverse and start going back towards those sorts of cars because I just don't think that um, ultimately there are enough people out there who want those sorts of cars because people who tune into this podcast and read Drive Nation and be it on Patreon or Instagram are very different to the people who go and buy you know very fast very powerful cars who are much more interested in their image than how they get down the road but um, in this little happy forum of ours just amongst ourselves <laughs> I think I could talk about this stuff. It kind of ties into the conversation we had recently about car handling and the fact that actually it isn't more grip and more body control um, and tied into that more speed that makes a car fun. It's it's simplicity and lightness and the sensations that, and the confidence that you feel as a driver. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's a, a drum we should continue to bang because it's important, um, particularly with the, the sort of rush towards electric cars and electrification, because... As much as anything, those cars are heavier. Um, they have more sort of accessible performance because of their electric motors. Um, and they, they sort of, they're more and more peak car, aren't they? And. But is any of it fun? Exactly. Exactly. That's quite right. And if, if this love that we have for driving is going to be sort of sustained into the modern era with modern kit, um, you know, some clever people are going to, re- are going to really have to think about this and find a way to sort of, pull away from back off from peak car um yeah it's an interesting one but we're going to keep shouting about it there's no question yeah okay let's get stuck into this handful of really interesting really intriguing um new cars that we want to talk about because we just seem to have gone through a phase of driving lots and lots of different stuff. And I wanted to do a roundup um, of the most interesting cars among them. I mean, um, I, I, mean I, I think this is payback from months and months of lockdown, isn't it? It's just all the cars we would have been driving over the last six months. And now all finally sort of yeah, come out of the woodwork all at once. And uh, and there's a bit of a glut, as, as you say, from tiny little electric things to, you know, big, fast, scary carbon fiber things. There's just lots and lots of cars which are, you know there's 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 not much that they have in common other than the fact in one aspect or another they're just interesting exactly yeah they're intriguing aren't they um okay so andrew you're going to talk about um well we'll have to see if we have time to get onto them all but um one of the cars you want to talk about is the mclaren 620r and the other is um a gto engineering built 250 short wheelbase type thing um so which of those two do you want to start off with 
Let's go with the McLaren. Um, and I think I would say, was, because we've got quite a few cars, we're going to try and rattle through these um, quite quickly. So, yeah, the 620R is the last of what they call the Sports Series McLaren. And people, I'm sure, will know that McLaren have always designated their cars into three series, uh, at least for the last 10 years that McLaren Automotive has been in existence. So there's the Sports Series cars, which are things like the 570S and the um, 600LT. And then there's the Super Series, which uh, were things like the 650S and became the 720S. And then there's the Ultimate Series, which is, you know, Senna's and Speed Tail's and p1s and, and that sort of thing uh, my understanding is that that's going to change um in future the i think the ultimate series will stay but the sports and the super series are going to be uh, are, are going to cease to exist as concepts uh, and mclaren will just make different sorts of cars um, and won't seek to sort of pigeonhole them in that way so the last of those cars is the 620r uh, and it is, as I say, the sports series car. Um, and it's really, I think it's the first attempt really to turn a road car, um, into a car that is actually far more focused on the track than the road. So 600 LT, um, you know, people think of it as being a bit of a track day car, but in fact, it's just as capable on the road. Um, uh, the 620R is, is absolutely not. I've driven it on the road and it's good enough, I think is the only way I could describe that. But it's, it's actually, it's not even based on the 600LT. It's based on the, um, 570S GT4 race car. Um, and so instead of taking a road car and sort of turning it up and turning it into a bit of a track car, they've actually taken a racing car and wound it back a bit, uh, until it's road legal. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's a quarter of a million pounds, um, which is an enormous amount of money, particularly if you think, you know, you could spend £100,000 less than that, maybe more, and get a 600LT, which isn't going to be a lot slower, and frankly, isn't going to be a lot less fun. Um, but, you know, at the same time, McLaren are only making 225 of these things, which will make it rarer than any Ultimate Series car that there has been, other than the Speedtail. I mean, rarer than a 675LT, rarer than a Senna, um, rarer than a P1. Um, so, you know, that's what you're paying for. Um, were this a series production car, like an LT, no way would it be worth a quarter of a million pounds. But as a sort of collector's item and as a way to get the last of those um, Sports Series chassis out the door, I just thought it was interesting because I've been lucky enough to race the um, the 570S GT4 car, so I'm fairly uh, familiar with how that gets around the track. And obviously, we, we all know how, uh, or you and I know, how the road cars get around the track. And it, and it really does kind of find the middle ground between those two. You couldn't just put a 570S GT4 car on treaded tyres because all sorts of things, you know, ground clearance, um suspension geometry i mean it would uh, spring rates it would just be horrible um but as a sort of middle ground um and mclaren will uh, have actually had with pirelli a brand new dedicated slick developed for this car i'm not sure how you get it to the circuit um, for your track day but i guess that's kind of your problem um but yeah to you to to roll up to a circuit in a car like that, bolt on a set of slicks and go off around a track, it's, it's kind of an interesting experience and it is very, very capable. I mean, we all know how capable McLarens are even on treaded tyres. And we've always said, haven't we, that, you know, with cars like, 
um, like the Senna, that they're they're limited by their tire, um, and the, the cars are so good. And, and if you put a slick on these things, even if it's actually a very hard and durable slick, like the slick that uh, McLaren have had developed for the 570s, it is like um, pulling the cork out of a bottle. Suddenly, you get onto a whole new level, um, and suddenly the car comes alive, and you do you do find a dimension of driving enjoyment um when you've got a car that's on the sort of that's on a tire that's designed to go around a track that just isn't there on any tire um with treads it's obviously much faster on the slicks but it's also more durable the slicks actually last longer than the trofeo r standard road tires um so it's a kind of a bit of a win-win um so yeah i really liked it uh there will be people obviously who go oh you know who will mutter about you know it's ridiculous it's incredibly expensive um you know um uh, why would you not go and get a a 600 LT and bolt a set of slicks onto that. Well, you know, the, 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 no one's stopping you and you can. But I think for a certain sort of person, uh, who likes that idea and likes the idea of having this extremely exclusive limited edition run, uh, I think there is a place for it. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I think a few people have grumbled that it's yet another limited McLaren. Um, but it, it, this one is a bit more interesting to me because uh, clearly, as you said, it appeals to a very particular type of person, probably someone who has a whole fleet of other cars. Um, and you might say, oh, just go GT4 racing. And do you know what? I suspect a lot of the people who, who will be interested in the 620R will go racing, um, but they'd like to have a 620R in the garage for those days that they're not working or racing or on a, I don't know, a continental road trip or something. And I can imagine that having one of these cars and using it only a few times a year perhaps on McLaren events um, and, you know, and having a hotshot young GT driver giving you some tuition in it. You know, I, I can I can see that there must be, a well, there must be 225 people um, who think that idea is quite appealing. So, yeah, I sort of I sort of understand it. You know, if they were trying to shift a thousand of them, maybe not, but. Um, yeah, and, and, and I think I think that's I think that's the thing. And just sort of um, broadening that out a bit. Um, and this is something perhaps we will talk about in more depth at another time. I think that the days of cars like 600 LTs and Pista Ferraris and that sort of thing, which, you know, kind of have the aura of being, you know, special cars, but in fact are just standard production units, which their manufacturers will make as many of as they can sell. I think those days are over because I think fingers are getting burnt now. I think the world's a very different place to the way it was a year or two ago. And I think that if I was uh, McLaren, if I was Ferrari, I would be putting numbers on every single one of those sorts of cars that we made and and I would be declaring upfront to you know customers but basically they're investors aren't they and saying we will make no more than this number of that car um because I think you know the the reason that um you know 600 LTs um as an example have suffered so much is that People have suddenly cottoned onto the fact that they may be wonderful cars, but there are quite a few of them out there. Uh, and we all know what, you know, supply does to residual value. So, you know, I think if these guys are sensible, they will declare in advance how many they'll make. And if that means, you know, in retrospect, they look back and they go, Oh, well, yeah, we could have sold a few more hundred of them. Surely that's better to have that situation where you've got rock solid residuals for the ones that you have sold, uh, rock solid confidence in your brand than knocking out more cars than the market wants wants to buy and then going through you know putting your customers through an awful lot of pain um when they come to sell 
Yeah, exactly. That old principle of building just a few short of uh, the number that you could sell. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems to make sense to us sitting here, doesn't it? Um, okay, all right. Well, rather than you um, speaking nonstop for 30 minutes, maybe I'll jump in with one of my cars. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> none, none taken, I hope. Um, <laughs> none at all. No, give us the Honda E. <laughs> just give you a break. Um, okay, Honda E, yeah. Uh, okay, so Honda's first uh, sort of mainstream electric car um, and it follows that really funky looking concept from a couple of years ago that lit up whichever motor show it was revealed at. Um, yeah, I remember. I, I can't remember what show it was, but I was there. Amazing looking thing. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking over you, but I mean, I, only because I haven't driven it. And it's, you know, it's actually funny enough. It's the kind of electric car that I could get excited about because it's kind of small and it's fun and it's funky. Does it live up to it? Ah, there we go. <laughs> so, I mean, for one comment first on the way the car looks. I think a few of us were, we felt slightly let down when the production car was unveiled, um, what, earlier this year? Was it the year before? Um, and I think that's fair enough because the, the concept looked so cool with its huge wheels and big flared arches and stuff. Inevitably, they weren't going to make it into production and so the production car looks watered down. But I think with time, um, and when you see the production car in the flesh, it still looks great. And it's got such a distinctive face. Um, and it, you know, it, it looks brilliant. You could sort of see them developing an entire family of cars around that look, couldn't you? Absolutely. It's so strong. It's got real identity. Uh, it, look, it looks like a face. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's also got a great cabin. Um, it's you know there's there are interesting materials in there the the full width of the dash is covered in digital screens there are actually five digital screens across the dash the outer two are feeds for the rear facing cameras uh, there are no door mirrors just those rear facing cameras they, they take a little bit of getting used to what i found was that i didn't quite trust them i only drove the car for half a day and i didn't quite trust them um and so i was checking over my shoulders a lot actually probably not a bad thing and with time you get used to it i'm sure and is that standard on all of them or do you only get the five screens and the cameras and that sort of thing if you go and buy the whiz bang ritzy top of the range model all standard all standard um i drove the advanced model which cost 29 grand and it's got the more powerful 152 brake horsepower motor yeah sounds like sounds like, yeah that sounds like a lot doesn't it for what is a little city car but then this thing's electric and it weighs 1,500 kilograms. Oh! <laughs> it's a dense car. Gosh. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. And that sort of under... You know, I, I really enjoy driving little city cars, petrol-powered ones, I mean, because they feel light and sprightly and agile and on their tiptoes you know um, <laughs> and i'm guessing this one doesn't well at 1500 kilos well you know the, the weight is low in the car it's you know it's a typical electric car thing isn't it with the batteries across the floor very low center of gravity so it's not sort of rolling and heaving all over the place but there's no escaping and you know we're, we're talking about a, a, a little city car so and that is a different kind of fun to drive to even a hot hatch you know we're talking about urban environments and sort of chucking it around roundabouts and that sort of thing. And when you do that in the Honda E, it runs out of grip very, very quickly, which, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you've always got this impression of weight. Um, and so it, it just isn't, for me, fun to drive the way 
I don't know, a little VW Up can be fun to drive around. Yeah, town. I mean, I mean, particularly if you have a car that looks like that, I always think that looks sort of kind of write checks, don't they? And if the car beneath can't cash it, then it's always going to be disappointing because then what you've got is a car which is absolutely at its very best when parked. <laughs> um, and it's, it's not it's not good enough, isn't it? You know, if you're going to make a car that looks like that, you know, you better deliver on the promise of those looks. Otherwise, you're going to get people like you and me. Just, I mean, I, I don't, I haven't driven it, but I'll, I'll absolutely take your word for it. Um, it sounds like something of a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it just it doesn't for me it doesn't quite manage to be fun to drive, and that that matters to me. And it, you know, it it does it does feel brisk at sort of low and moderate speeds. You know, electric cars tend to. Um, it's got a decent ride. Um, it it's got a, a kind of sense of integrity about it, so it doesn't feel like a little tinny city car that sort of reverberates around you. Um, so you know, there, there's plenty to like about it. I just I didn't have a blast driving it, and I I was disappointed in that because I really wanted to adore this little thing and sort of long to own one. And I didn't quite. Um, having said that, you know, I think there will be plenty of people, you know, younger, professional, urban types who who live in town and therefore the realistic 100-mile range is sort of, you know, it's not too much of a problem. Um, and they'll love the way it looks. They'll love the cabin. And great, you know, they'll be really into it. But for me, as I've said, it's just not quite fun enough to drive for me to be among them. Okay, um, can, 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 I, can I ask you this? Um BMW i3, old car now, yeah. Does the, does this Honda actually move the game on? As as far as you know, what you're talking about, you know, city, predominantly city dwelling transport. Does this Honda move the game on significantly further than where the i3 was what, six seven years ago? I, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Um, I thought the i3 was quite fun to drive in its way. Um, and I don't think the E is quite as fun. Um, it's got a realistic range, as I've said, of 100 miles. They claim a bit more than that, but of course, when you actually use the thing, it's 100 miles. Um, for knocking about town, that is absolutely fine. But the moment you want to go a little bit further, you really have to start planning. Um, they say that on a fast charger, although they don't exactly define what that is, you'll get an 80% charge in 30 minutes. Um, and on the Honda Wall box at home, a full charge in four hours. Um, you know, there's kind of, there's plenty to like about it. I just didn't love it. And as you say, it doesn't move the game on. Um, apart from in silly things, like it's got a HDMI connect, uh, connector in the cabin. So you can plug in a games console if you so choose and play games on the, the screens across the dash. Um, and, you know, it has got a great cabin. So there's there's plenty that to admire about it, but... I don't know. Maybe they'll do a version and they sort of spend a bit more time on the on the dynamics and perhaps then I'll love it. But 30 grand, almost, 100 miles. Don't know. It's not entirely convincing, is it? Mm, don't know. I need to get, have a going one. But for, certainly from what you're saying, no, it's, it sounds like it's uh, it's a bit too much for not quite enough. Mm. Um, okay, so from one car to a very, very different sort of car... Um, Tell us about the 250 short wheelbase-ish that you've been driving. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, so this is a there's a company called GTO Engineering. They've been going for about thirty five years. I mean, they they are pretty pucker guys, um, and you know they restore and rebuild um, and sell um, predominantly um, Ferraris, predominantly from the fifties, sixties, and seventies. And actually, you know, for a while now, they've only recently sort of got themselves a press car, which is why this thing's been doing the rounds a bit of late. But they what they've been doing is they have been making brand new 250 short wheelbases um now yeah these are i don't know what to call because they're not really continuation cars because they're not made by ferrari um but they're not replicas um because well maybe they are replicas but but but, but they are the same um there is no difference there unless you want there to be you know they will do one with a slightly bigger engine or with slightly different suspension or that sort of thing but you know ba- basically they are very very faithful recreations um of the original short wheelbase and the original short wheelbase as i'm sure most will know was ferrari's sort of staple gt racing car of the very early 1960s it's a car in which sterling moss won two consecutive um rac tourist trophy races it was the thing to go to before it was replaced by the fabled um gto um and back then you know they made a very small number of short wheel bases there were steel bodied sort of road cars and then there were a very very small number of alloy bodied um competition cars and even the steel bodied cars these days go for sort of like five or six million pounds and you could probably double that for an alloy bodied car so i mean we are talking telephone numbers um but if you give GTO Engineering, you know, um, 600 grand and wait 18 months, you can have a short wheelbase. Um, it, as I say, it won't be an original, but it will be as good as to drive. And I know this because I have driven it and I've been very lucky to have driven an original short wheelbase. So, you know, I, I, I have some basis for making that comparison. Um, the reason it's able to call itself a Ferrari is because um there's a donor vehicle now the donor vehicle may be something like an old 330 gt or a 250 gte or something like that which has been you know fire damaged or smashed to bits and is beyond economic repair um and in that case there may be one or two bits from it which find its way into your recreated short wheelbase um but in fact um all they actually need is the identity um and so they could pretty much make one of these cars out of anything that started life as a ferrari because you know there's not actually any requirement for any of the original car to be in it uh, it's just que- literally just a question of you know having that logbook and being entitled to the identity of, of of that car and to drive it's you know the car i drove is so they do cars with i think they do do a standard three liter engine though i don't think anybody wants them um and there's a three and a half and there's a four liter and i drove a three and a half liter car with 320 horsepower it weighs just over a ton it was absolutely bloody magical um it was it was so much fun it goes back to what we're talking about about you know cars getting worse because uh, they do sort of bump and jump about a bit but you know you're having so much fun you know the gear change is just superb the steering is phenomenal it's so compact so chuckable Uh, and the noise of that motor i mean you know you forgive anything for that alone and you know i when i read about it on um drive nation it it actually attracted a kind of fairly mixed bag of comments some people going wow that's amazing and others going well you know why wouldn't you just get a daytona which is at least a real proper car 
um, or you could just go, you know, and, and get yourself an original 250 GT, which wouldn't be a short wheelbase, but it would at least be an authentic um, Ferrari and you would have that knowledge and that pride and it wouldn't be something that was put together by, you know, a bunch of people um, in the south of England. And I get that completely. Um, but I also get um, those people who, you know, are clearly very wealthy, but not, you know, multi, multi, multi-millionaires and therefore not in a position to buy the real thing, who just have loved those things. You know, much like, well, I said, apart from the wealthy bit, much <laughs> like me, um, as someone who have loved those things since they've been able to talk and just think to themselves, well, you know, here is a way in which I can have a completely authentic 250 short wheelbase experience um, for what, you know, a tenth of the money of the cheapest one, real one that you go on and buy. So, you know, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but I think it's for somebody. And, you know, what I was more interested in was kind of the quality of the job and whether it felt real to me. And the quality was superb, probably rather better than it was when the, the originals came out of the factory 60 years ago. Um, and absolutely it felt authentic to me. So yeah, big thumbs up. Interesting. Now, if somebody, if a, a company came along and said, we're making uh, these recreations or whatever we want to call them of, yeah. I don't know, Rolex watches and they perform just as well as, uh, you know, a, a real Rolex and they look just the same um, and they're a tenth of the price. We'd go, well, it's a fake. It's, it's, very, you know, it's very interesting. And, and that's why I think it's, it's quite important not to be too judgmental about these things. I mean, the thing about fake watches, and you know, I've bought a few of my time, um, is, that they, is, that, is that they're rubbish. Um, you know, I, I, I have a thing about Hoya Carreras, you know, 1964 Hoya Carreras, and I can't afford the £25,000 it would cost to buy one. Um, but I found this nice chap on the side of the road in some kind of <laughs> Vietnam somewhere who, who was kind enough to sell me one for, for I think it was $4. Um, and the thing was, it was just, it was just rubbish and it was funny. It was just a joke and you'd never pretend it was real and you just sort of wave it around and wait for the hands to fall off. When you do, you throw it away and, and, you, and, and you kind of move on. This isn't that. This is actually better quality um than an original short wheelbase it is absolutely authentic in the way that it goes stops steers handles looks everything um it's not a cheap nasty knockoff it's the real deal in all but name so to me it's a it's a very very different thing um now so i suppose the question if somebody were to make a rolex that was other than the fact it wasn't made by rolex um you know it was a rolex in every single regard i mean you know if you buy i don't know a g-wagon that's built by magna in austria not by mercedes-benz uh or if you bought an old uh, porsche boxster that was made by valme in in finland are you know, are those not mercedes are they not i don't know i mean it's uh, i don't know where you draw the line and, and to me it, it it becomes almost an exercise in in semantics as long as nobody misrepresents what they are and i think this is actually um uh, a potential potentially problematic area is that you know you know and i know that when you go to race meetings and you see really really a grid full of really really expensive classic cars racing you know that not all of them were built in period you know that quite a few of them were built i mean i'm going to go and do the spa six hours um in a couple of weeks time and that is full of cars which look like ford gt40s um but i doubt very many of them were built by ford in the 1960s um and you know and and that is to me that is absolutely fine 
um, because it protects the original cars. And as long as nobody actually tries to make them out to be something that they are not, as long as nobody tries to create histories for these cars that they do not deserve, then I personally don't have a problem with it. But, you know, there are clearly instances where people have built brand new cars and have claimed that an identity that they don't deserve. Um, and that's fraud. It's simple as that. Um, and, you know, you can't have anything to do with it. But I think as long as people are honest, then, you know, I think they should be allowed to get on with it. Oh, it's a fascinating topic. Lots of sort of shades of grey to it. Um, and a, a discussion that's going to rumble on. So the GTO engineering car, what it sounds like it's effectively built from scratch. Um, and so what's it built around? Is it a, a tubular chassis? Yes, exactly. It's the same chassis uh, to the same design as two short wheelbases were built around. You know, it's, you know, I, I am sure that if you were an expert, um, you could, you know, get underneath it and see where it was different, but it'd probably be different because the welding would be better. Um, you know, it, it would be that sort of thing. You know, it's not like it suddenly, you know, got independent rear suspension from somewhere or is, you know, running a Quafe or a Hewland gearbox in it or, or, you know, it's not a, it's not a silhouette. Um, you know, it's not one thing pretending to be something completely different. Um, you know, if you open up the engine, it's a, you know, it's a Colombo V12 Ferrari engine. Um, you know, now, you know, if, if you have an original Ferrari 250 GTO and you blow it up and you want a new engine, well, you know, it, it's unlikely that Ferrari are going to cast that block for you or provide those pistons for you. Um, that doesn't mean it's not a Ferrari engine. Um, you know, if, you know, every one of those cars could only be considered original if every single piece in it was made by the manufacturer, then there wouldn't be an original car out there. So, you know, I don't know where you draw the line. Uh, and to me, even going down that road is is a bit of a red herring. I think that, you know, what matters is that people are are, are honest about them. And, and you know, that short way, I mean, to the, to the extent that I put this in the piece on Drive Nation, that um, original short wheelbases had fuel pumps mounted outside their fuel tanks uh, and because this car for safety has a bag tank inside the beautiful welded aluminium tank so a bag tank you can't see and it has its pump inside the tank they actually put a fake fuel pump in there exactly the right size and shape as the original ferrari one so when people look down there it looks correct so that's the level of detail they go to um and yeah i thought it was great It's it's a really interesting concept and if nothing else a very good use of a knackered old 348 yeah, I mean, you could, uh, you, you could do that. The, the, the only issue you get into, I mean, you know, you could turn up there with, with, with anything, as I said, because it's the identity they want. But if the identity of that belongs to a car that is, was made in the sort of emissions era, then you're suddenly going to find yourself with a 250 short wheelbase that has to pass emission tests. Um, and you could find yourself getting, um, a little bit of pain um, because, you know, as far as the logbook is concerned, this is a, a, a whatever it is, a 1993 car, not a 1960 car. Um, so it, you would be better to find some kind of car, some kind of Ferrari um, that was a bit closer to the actual period just to get you out of those sorts of issues. Wow. It's, it's such an odd concept. And when you get stuck into it, it seems like a little bit of a minefield, but... I mean, the outcome and the driving experience that you've described, you can't really argue with that, I don't think. I wonder if we'll be seeing more of this stuff with other Ferraris and perhaps, I don't know, old Porsches and old Astons or whatever. Well, you know, I think the thing is, I think it's actually been going on for a very long time. Uh, and I think people are 
you know, I mean, in the historic racing world, you know, we've all known that these sorts of things have been happening for a very long time. Um, but I think what is happening is that uh, I think people are beginning to realise that, you know, and maybe this will be an alternative to sort of, you know, modern hypercars and, you know, back to the conversation about peak car and cars you can't use. Why not go and spend that kind of money on a car that you had in your bedroom wall when you were a kid and which you can get into and you can drive it as fast as you possibly can um, and you can reach the limits and it's not going to tear your head off um, and, you know, you can have something which with which you have always been in love rather than just getting something which has just, you know, come out and you quite fancy the idea of but might, you know, go off again in six months' time. So I suspect we will see more of these sorts of cars and I think they will increasingly become, you know, rivals to, you know, the cars, the modern cars that we, you know, regard as, you know, expensive automotive recreations. I I adore the Ferrari 250 short wheelbase. I think it's maybe the prettiest car ever made. Um, I, they sound fantastic. And until a few weeks ago, I was five, six million quid short. Now I'm only 590,000 pounds short. So There you go. Keep saving, mate. By the time you're <laughs> my age, you'll have one. I think we're getting somewhere. Um, okay, let me give you another one of my cars uh, because I've been driving the Mercedes AMG CLA 45S plus the uh, formatic plus uh, it goes on and on um it's a it's effectively um an a45s with a saloon boot so it looks kind of a bit more elegant mercedes wants us to think it's a four-door coupe and it's not it's a saloon car um so it's it, it's a hot hatch in evening wear exactly yeah well there you go you've got it in in yeah in tails um it's it, it, so it's mechanically um pretty much identical to the a45s um it's slightly heavier because of its sort of extra body work um and it's uh you know technically it's a very very capable car um and it's these four-cylinder amgs they haven't always been especially good to drive but i think this one is now um it's got really good natural sort of inherent chassis balance and it deals with a bumpy road well so in that way it feels quite sophisticated when it finds its way down a road um it's got 415 brake horsepower so it feels massively quick um can you sort of sense where this is going the base price is 52k um a little bit more than the a45s but i drove the one with a plus upgrade um which is almost sixty thousand pounds what 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 does, the, what does the plus buy you? It's things like massage seats and a uprated stereo and oh okay okay you know a few bits and pieces stuff you could probably live without but you know it's almost sixty grand um, and it's got a four cylinder engine um, and it's got the interior of well the A class starts at about twenty five grand and it's got that interior albeit with you know uprated seats and a different steering wheel. Um, so I guess question one uh, is, and I have driven this car, and it's a question I ask myself: is what for you would be the reason for buying that car over an A45s? Uh, well, maybe it looks slightly more elegant. It'll be a, a rarer sight on the roads, I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's sort of fundamentally less practical, isn't it? Because it's got a saloon rather than a big hatch boot and a lower roof line for the for the, the rear seat. Um, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure why you'd have one um, over the the A45, but some people will. My problem with it is, and it's it sort of speaks of these um, these hot hatch and well, you know, small hot saloon type cars that are 
now massively powerful things like the RS3 as well the Audi RS3 you know they've got more than 400 horsepower which is great they've got the performance of a 50 60 grand car but they're still based on cars that ultimately cost half that price um and so what i found in the CLA 45S was that the interior didn't feel up to that kind of money but then nor does the overall sense of solidity um so when you whack a door shut you know it doesn't give you that 50 60,000 pound whump it gives you a bit of a tinny smack um and everything tire raw wind noise sort of overall nvh it it just doesn't feel like a near 60,000 pound car if i'd spent that money on it and i i was driving it along i'd think wow it it really doesn't give you that impression of um of integrity that you'd expect for that sort of money and and you know these audi and mercedes amg they're able to give these cars the performance of a near sixty thousand pound car but not that sense of uh, solidity integrity and that that kind of grates with me i think it's sort of an emerging issue that i'm going to be keeping an eye on Okay, that's very interesting. And, you know, I also get, when you talk about 60, you think about what, you know, what other kind of cars the same manufacturer give you for that kind of money. You think of the C class you could buy for nearly 60,000 pounds or even the E class you could buy for that kind of money. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I know what you mean. I mean, for me, um, you know, having driven it, I just have an A45. I just, because it's, uh, it's more usable. Um, I actually quite like the looks of the A45S and I, I like the fact that it's a hatchback and, and I like the fact that it's cheaper. So, you know, for me, it's a no brainer. I'd have the A45S over every day of the week. The other thing about the car is that, yeah, it's got more than 400 horsepower and it's got the performance you would expect, but th- there's only so much you can do with four cylinders in a turbo, you know, and at some point, and for me, that point probably is around the 50 grand mark. You just want, a bigger engine don't you i want eight cylinders particularly from a mercedes amg and i want the soundtrack and the power delivery i mean who would spend fifty thousand pounds on a car with a turbocharged four cylinder i thought engine you might band? say that i thought I mean, who do that? that i mean i mean what kind of lunatic <laughs> would you be to want to spend fifty thousand pounds on a car with a four cylinder turbocharged engine i mean god not Damn me it. <laughs> I will point out that it's a bespoke aluminium car on its own platform built in a dedicated family, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, talk- yeah, we're talking I- about Dan's A110 for anybody who hasn't already gotten onto this. Uh, but I know what you mean. And, and, and I can see, I can see the phrase BMW M2 comp heading confidently in the, in the, in the, in the direction of this conversation. That, yeah, that you would. That's the CLA 45S, a sort of very, very fast, very, capable and actually quite enjoyable car but one that i just i'm afraid i can't make any sense of um okay right now do you want to talk about the polestar 2 or porsche cayman gt4 versus gts i think i want to talk about the polestar 2 um i know you've driven it too um uh, okay so uh, where am i with it Uh, the more i drive those sorts of cars i'm afraid the more I'm not sure they're my kind of car. And I don't mean that from any kind of sort of weird eco position. I just, they interest me technically, but they don't interest me dynamically. Um, I actually thought the Polestar 2 was of its kind, um, you know, quite well resolved. There are lots of things about the car that I like. I like the interior. I like the sort of no nonsense 
approach to it. The fact that there is no off switch or whatever, you literally just get in it, pull it into D and off you go. Um, I quite like the way that it looks. Um, I don't know if the one you drove had the performance pack on it. This is a five grand pack. This is an electric family car, which comes with adjustable O-lens on it and massive Brembo brakes. And, and it's just, uh, I think this is kind of, to me, what this max of is, you know, Volvo or Geely or whatever you're calling its parent this week, sitting down and thinking, well, Polestar's our performance brand. Um, and we've got this electric hatchback, which is not really very performance-like. So what can we get? I know we'll put some adjustable Olins on it and we'll give it some big brakes with it and we'll make sure that everybody can see the word Brembo through the big 20-inch wheels and it just, and we can charge another five grand for it. And, you know, I haven't driven one without that pack. So, you know, maybe I'm being unfair, but. You know, it's, 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 it's not a car that you want to hoon around in because, you know, it, it weighs two tons. Um, and it's electric and you, you know, you haven't, you haven't even got paddles, let alone a, you know, a, a gear shift. You know, all the things that we want to do with the cars that we enjoy driving, you can't do in this car. It doesn't make any noise. Um, so, you know, why not just accept that that's the way that it is? And just make it ride properly. Because, I mean, I guess, you know, my biggest problem with it was that I suspect because of this performance pack, it didn't ride properly. It was quite lumpy and, you know, sometimes it would do okay. And I think the faster you went and the longer the wave of undulation you're going over, the better it coped with. But the sort of low speed secondary ride was just not what I wanted a car like that to be. And, um, yeah, so the, having said all that, I'd prefer it to a Tesla Model 3. Um, I think Autocar did a test between the two and came down in favour of the Tesla, um, which is, you know, fine and fair enough. But for me, um, I, th- I think it just feels like a, a an item of an altogether higher quality than a Tesla. Um, you also get instruments in front of you, which you don't in a Model 3. You don't actually have to take your eye off the road to see how fast you're going, which is nice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I liked it. I did. Um but only in a very sort of technical, objective, academic kind of way. It's it's not a car that I can see myself falling for at all. Mm, yeah, interesting. I, I I really liked it because I like the, the, the what they've prioritised with. I like the Swedish design and I like yeah. the quality of the cabin. Agreed. That, that stuff I was really into. Um, but I yeah I I agree with you on the performance pack. I, I put it to them. I said, is the you know are the dampers only there as a statement of intent? Um, and I think they sort of squirmed a little bit and gave some not very memorable answer. And actually, I think that is why they're there. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's slightly confused, isn't it? Because you've got this very firm riding, tautly controlled car that's not fun to drive because it's electric. And those cars, I'm afraid, and weighs two tons. And it weighs two tons. And yeah, and they're just generally not fun to drive the way that a petrol car can be. And that, and that's not Polestar's fault. That's just the way those cars are. You know, if you do an electric car with the technology that is available to people at the, that's what you come up with. Um, you know, a Tesla Model 3 is, you know, I, I, I think they've actually tried a bit harder with the dynamics than that, but you know, that feels quite arcade-like, um, to drive. It's, it's just not a car that feels in any way natural, although, you know, if, if you look at it objectively, it is quite capable. Um, it kind of at least tries to respond in the way that you want it to. But yeah, no, it, it, it <sighs> dynamically, it left me a bit cold while, I mean, static, I think your static qualities are really, really good. And, you know, that said, if I was going to spend, you know, anything less than 50 grand on 
an all-electric car, um, I think it's probably the one that you'd, you, you, that you'd have to go for. I, um, I So I did the launch event a few weeks ago, and they delivered a fully charged one to my home in Bristol, and I had to drive it up to the launch event at Millbrook uh, in Bedfordshire, uh, which is, what's that, 140 miles or something? About that, um, yeah, I would think. Yeah, and I was getting a little bit sweaty uh, on the M25, thinking, <laughs> am I going to make it? Um, and it's because the electric cars just hate motorway driving, um, particularly if, you know, we're all used to sitting at 80 plus um, on the motorway, realistically. And when you do that, you just kill the range of these cars. Um, and so on the motorway, I think you're looking at a realistic 150 miles and you're spending 50 grand plus. Um, it just they I think they claim something like 292 miles. And I, 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 I found myself going, well, hang on, I've, I've barely achieved half that. Yeah. Um, and not, and not, I mean, not, not everyone will drive like you, but, you know, um, even for, you know, I think even with a light foot. I mean, the only electric car I've driven, which did exactly what it said on the tin, um, insofar as, you know, the range that it claimed uh, was the range that it delivered, despite the fact that a lot of the driving I did in it was on motorways with the Taycan. Um, I think it turned, but then again, it wasn't being terribly ambitious. I think it turned up reckoning it would do 223 miles. Um, and you know, I did 200 miles and the range remaining was 23. Um, yeah. but you know, very much the exception to the rule. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let me give you one of mine and then we'll come back and talk about Cayman GT4 versus GTS. I'll be very brief with this one. It's the new Suzuki Swift Sport Hybrid. Um, a car close to my heart because a Swift Sport back in 2008 was my very first long-termer. Um, and they were they were really fun little things back then. Um, quite sort of exotic, really high revving engines. Just great fun to blast around in and hoon, hoon around in. And it oversteered on a lifted throttle really well. Uh, and I love that about it. Um, and this new one, actually, it still does that. Uh, but it's it's been facelifted for 2020 and it gets this new mild hybrid system. Actually, it, that only adds 10 kilograms to the overall weight of the car. Um, and it just sort of helps tickle it along when you're accelerating from low speeds just to improve fuel efficiency by, I don't know, 10% or something, um, which is fair enough. Maybe you'll see, you know, maybe, maybe you will notice the, the gains at the petrol station, but I'd be surprised. Um, it feels like a higher quality thing inside now. The seating position is much improved. But, it, it, I mean, it's really fun to drive um, along a flowing B-road, which is kind of the point, isn't it? Uh, you can actually change its attitude on the throttle quite uh, dramatically, which is where the fun in a front-wheel drive hot hatch is. Um, steers pretty well. I think it had a, a very unsatisfying brake pedal. Um, but the point is, it was fun to blast around in. However... I remember when ah, I knew there was a however. I knew it's it was coming. It was always coming. <laughs> I remember when the Swift Sport was a really affordable hot hatch, but it's now it's twenty one and a half thousand pounds basic. Um and unfortunately for it, it's got it's got less power than it had before and it's slightly slower. Um I guess, I think it's been WLTP'd. Um it's got a hundred and thirty horsepower, but it costs the same as the brilliant two hundred horsepower Ford Fiesta ST. Yeah, well, it's just end of, isn't it? It's just, you know, argument, argument over. Um, yeah, and unless, you know, a, a Ford ran over your foot one time, I mean, you just would have the Fiesta, wouldn't you? You just would, yeah. And you can say that about pretty much any any other. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? I mean, I, I haven't driven this car, but I mean, I can remember hooning around the place in 
Swift Sports, um, you know, 10 or more years ago and just, just, just really liking their sort of, you know, no nonsense, back to basics, normally aspirated, you know, um, three pedal fun that they offered. Um, and it sounds to me like that they are ever so slightly moving away from that now, which is a shame. Mm, price is the big issue, really. Um, and, and, you know, when you're going up against the Fiesta ST, you have to be brilliant across the board and this car isn't quite. Um, okay, right. So let, let's get back to the Porsches then. Um, I, I, I think you're going to say here that for actually real world use and as an ownership proposition, if you're going to use it daily in particular, the 718 Cayman GTS 4 litre uh, is the one you'd have over a GT4. Uh, that's exactly what I'm going to say. Yeah. Good, um, we're done. You, okay, well, we'll you see you again next week. Literally, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I did this just because, I mean, this is, uh, and feel free to leap in and contradict me, but I think this is the first time that we've ever had a standard production Porsche, which um, you know, is, is, you know, can hold its head up high against one of the sort of fabled motorsport products um, because they've always been very different, haven't they? I mean, a GT3 or a GT2 uh, has always been a very, very different proposition to any normal 911. But because, um, you know, they decided to put the um, flat six back in the Cayman GTS for this, um, generation and it's effectively the same engine, a little less powerful, but effectively the same engine that you have in the GT4. Then suddenly you have, you think, well, actually, I mean, how different are they really? And the, you know, one's 11 grand more expensive than the other. So I went and spent a day driving two of them together and ah, I thought one set of things all the way through until right at the end when I thought something completely different. Go on. So, so for most of the day, um, when we were taking photographs and I was just sort of driving normally and everything else, and I was just sitting there thinking, do you know what? Actually, the GTS is just the better bet um, because it rode better and you know it didn't seem to be any slower. And I had an absolute ball driving it. And I loved it. Um, and then... Uh, it was right at the end. I think I was doing sort of handling shots and, and that sort of thing and, and just pushing, just pushing on a bit, pushing into that area where Porsche GT cars always come into their own. And the thing is, it still does. Um, it's just that little bit more alive. Obviously, it's got more grip and better traction and all that sort of stuff you'd expect. Um, but it just felt it felt more alive in my hands. There was just better feel. It had that sort of, you know, that slightly otherworldly um ability to just kind of you know flatten out the road in front of you and just deal with absolutely anything that you could chuck at it and then i started thinking to myself okay if this is what it's like kind of in the gts's environment how big would the difference actually be if you got the two of them on the track and i didn't do that so i don't know but my guess is that um if the gt4 was fractionally better just as a pure driving machine than the gts on the public road i suspect that would be a substantially bigger gap on the track so in the end i came kind of you know i think I, I what i would still say is that for most people most of the time the cayman gts is still the preferable car but i don't think that gt cars have ever appealed to most people i think that they appeal to a very particular sort of particularly discerning person and i would say that to them if you were thinking about getting a cayman gt4 because that's what you really wanted and then suddenly you thought well hang on a second i can save this money um and get a gts instead i'd be i wouldn't rush to do that mm. ultimately the gt4 is as a is a better driving machine but not by much uh, that's very interesting okay so porsche has 
kept just enough ground between the two for people who really love driving. Yeah, but I bet they never do it. I bet they never, ever come that close ever again and all the stuff they make in the future. I, I, I think that Porsche probably realised that those two cars are closer than they should be, um, particularly from the point of view of the reputation of the Porsche and motorsports department. Um, and, you know, we, we keep on seeing these spy shots, don't we, of the GT4 RS uh, or what we believe to be the GT4 RS, and and I suspect that's uh, motorsport going. Okay, guys, you've had your fun now. Now you know, <laughs> let show us let, let let us show you what we can really do, um, uh, and, and that might be something else. Ah, uh, interesting. That's really cool. Okay, well I, that one kind of flew by, didn't it? We've done more than fifty minutes already. We'll leave it there, um, and we have to do all this stuff at the end of each episode, don't we? Please remember, everybody. Go on. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, no. I was just going to say, yeah, we, no, we we have to do this due diligence. It kind of what keeps yeah, yeah. us alive, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're going to keep doing it. So please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them. Leave us a review. Leave a glowing review. Uh, leave us a five star rating. Um, we don't want any fours or threes. Certainly not any twos or ones. Um, and remember to follow us on Instagram at drivenation underscore and check out our Patreon patreon.com forward slash drivenation. And yeah, we will be back next week. I look forward to it very much. Speak soon. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 